the upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Oh, my God. This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the prince of pro wrestling, and you are listening to two-man power trip. This is Jimmy Vine, the Boogie Woogie Man. Tell my people and my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. So you said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of responsible for putting all those asses in the seats in Buffalo. Yeah, you know, big yeah, big house, baby. All there to see Rob Van Dam. Big, big, big. This is worth coming out to see, folks. You think I'm cool on TV? Yeah. Wait till you see me in person. Yeah. Buffalo. That's where I won this title by beating Bam. Bam, Bam, Bigelow. By diving out to the fifth row on his big ass, huh? Big this time, Buffalo, baby. this time, I may aim for the 10th row. Yeah. Are the people in the bleachers safe, Fonzie? No. Because I'm allowed to go extreme here. Hell, let's face it. I'm allowed to take over. That's how I got my nickname. I'm Rob Van Dam. The whole <laughs> show. All right, let's get it going right here, right now. This is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Brought to you today and powered by our good old friends over at MyBookie. Stay tuned a little bit later on in the show and find out how you can make a difference in your sports betting life by taking advantage of our offer with MyBookie. And that is coming in a little bit of time here in this episode with 
the one and only, I'm trying to find my whistle, John. I lost it somewhere here. The one and only Bill Alfonso joining us today for a compelling chat uh, taking place in the middle of a giant storm. I believe that might have been the hurricane passing through the great state of Florida. But Bill Alfonso adding to our ECW library. And Bill Alfonso will be making the trek up to New Jersey for Legends of the Ring this coming weekend, September 21st. TMPT will be in the building, but Bill Alfonso making a rare appearance up in New Jersey, up in that uh, close to the ECW territory. And John, uh, I'm going to welcome you in here now. Uh, talk about Bill Alfonso. Talk about the stories. I mean, I know when you guys were setting it up, he gave you a time, you gave him a time, and he basically told you, partner, strap in, because these stories are going to take a while. Yeah, awesome stuff from Fonzie, and I love talking to him prior not really like a pre-interview so to speak but just kind of a get to know you kind of thing and a lot of uh things in common a little bit of a dusty Rhodes uh, tie-in of course as he was the assistant for dusty in florida for a very very long time and of course people know that's where he got his start really in the business but i love that when we we're kind of talking beforehand saying you know how long is it going to be this now to gave him a certain time he's like oh that's one story daddy that's all <laughs> you you know that that's that's too short so i'm like all right I'm all for it. Let's just strap in. Let's do this damn thing. So it's probably about two hours, probably a little over two hours. And I don't even think we scratched the surface. So immediately after the fact that we were talking and saying, you know, you got to come back on again for part two and maybe part three and part four. He's got so many stories that we didn't even get to. Just amazing, amazing stories. Like you you just mentioned a name to him and he can go off and rattle a story. So, for instance, I just wanted to talk kind of about his WWF run and Giant Gonzalez and what happened there. And, oh, my God, we got awesome <laughs> story about Giant Gonzalez. Just unbelievable. Even dating back to his WCW days, he was basically his handler for a few years and w- went everywhere with him. So when he traveled over from WCW to the WWF and was Giant Gonzalez, Alfonso, a.k.a. Fonzie, comes along with him for the ride. And obviously, if you remember a couple of his refereeing duties there, he is along for the ride for a little bit of time, and it's just awesome stuff, awesome stories. And it's an awesome glimpse into some stories you probably never heard of about John Gonzalez, who is such a fascinating guy because that era of wrestling, especially, it's it still was in that kind of freak show period. Not that it ever wasn't or isn't still, but that freak show thing was like, all right, this guy's taller than Andre the Giant. Okay, this guy's taller than Manute Bowl. Okay, this guy is eight <laughs> feet tall. You know what I mean? This guy is just a mythical, just giant character. Awesome story with Fonzie about that. And, of course, his days in the good old ECW as well. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and ECW, I mean, I guess that's where we're going to probably say he'd be most identifiable, obviously, by the side of Taz for such a long time. Then beside RVD and Sabu and and obviously the turn on uh, Taz to join those two. I mean, just a, a shocker to say the least, but such a staple of ECW was a character at a time where they weren't really giving spotlights to side characters like Bill Alfonso and uh, really gave ECW a lot of that, like that heat inside of that arena because the fans just hated him. I mean, he was like such a magnet just for the, uh, the vile of those fans in the ECW arena, but he did such a great job uh, and just played the, uh, the, the just really little, uh, little shitbag heel manager to the T 
And uh, not that it overrides that time as a, as a referee, because he has a great referee um, background as well. He's one of the more identifiable characters of that late 90s era ECW, because I think if anybody had as much screen time between 95 and 99, I think Bill Alfonso might be at the top of the list. Such a long time and big run in ECW, such a pivotal run in ECW. Basically, you know, when you're the manager of champions, you're managing RVD and Sabu, two of the biggest stars. And even before that, Taz, the turn the on Taz, the, uh, the, the swerve, and then obviously managing Sabu. I mean, it's a huge, huge moment in ECW, and it's when they were really growing. They're really becoming something huge. And obviously, Sabu and RVD were two of the biggest stars in ECW at that time. So he's going to play a monster role in their careers and in that point. A lot of promos being cut, a lot of things being said, Daddy. So awesome stuff. And then, of course, I mean, you can't forget matches against Todd Gordon and Beulah McGillicuddy. And when you think about it, you're like, oh, you know, you kind of laugh it off. Like, oh, those are joke matches. The crowd absolutely just ate it up, and they loved it. They hated Fonzie so much, they wanted to see anybody kick his ass, whether it be Todd Gordon or Beulah McGillicuddy. And if you look at the history of ECW, you see all these crazy matches, all this great crowd reaction. That match against Beulah is one of the most just crazy matches, bloody matches. And we got an awesome story about Fonzie, about how bloody it was and how messed up he was from it. But Paul Heyman, which is crazy to say, but Paul Heyman said it was one of his favorite, if not top five favorite, ECW matches of all time. Yeah, the blood loss is insane. Absolutely crazy that the the violence in that match with uh, with Beulah. But, hey, that's unforgettable, and he'll always have that uh, in terms of the ECW lore. So let's uh, let's kind of get to the wrap-up here. We're going to get into this interview. It's a long one, but it's definitely it's worth the, uh, the, the time investment because of the stories that I don't think have been heard in many places. Because, again, just like a lot of the guests that we have on this show, don't really hear them in many other locations in the podcast world, which it looks like we're kind of building this uh, ECW time capsule here especially over the last week, because if you've seen uh, in the iTunes feed and the podcast feed, as well as on social media, we've added one show to the mix. We've added ECW queen of extreme Francine getting her own podcast on the two man power trip of wrestling's podcasting empire. So a lot of ECW talk going on there. We had the Sandman on the debut episode of that show. Obviously John sitting down here with Bill Alfonso. And if you head on over to the Russo brand, you get the perspective every single week of the franchise Shane Douglas. So John, I mean, I think we're kind of indoctrinated into this world of ECW uh, pretty well at this point. I think uh, barbed wire and a Singapore cane, not too far in our future. Yes, I feel like with Shane and obviously adding Francine to the mix, very ECW heavy. Then you figure the TMPT show might not have ECW. Well, you're wrong because we're throwing in a two-hour-plus epic with Fonzie, the manager of champions himself, Bill Alfonso. And it's going to be quite an episode. You're going to love the stories. He's one of the best storytellers. And he's one of those guys that literally has been in every major promotion. And he had a job full-time in the wrestling business for about 30 years. So strap in. You're in for a great, great episode with Bill Alfonso. Yes, I completely agree. Wish I had my whistle. Definitely dropped the ball there. I will make up the next time uh, we have Mr. Alfonso back on the airwaves. So, by the way, TMPT, not done yet so keep an eye on the podcast feed as we move forward so john let's wrap it up here nice let's get on over to this interview with fonzie aka bill alfonso aka the manager of champions and let's get this show on the road now for some tmpt business 
Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Rasslin Pal. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, while on iTunes, check out the feed for prior legendary episodes featuring the living legend Bruno San Martino, the late great American Dream Dusty Rhodes, the Enforcer Arn Anderson, Ray Mysterio Jr., Glenn Kane Jacobs, the phenomenal AJ Styles, lead WWE attorney Jerry McDivitt, and so many others. Also, while you're on the internet, check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. They are your superstore for all your wrestling t-shirt needs. Check out our page. Check out Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Kevin Thorne, Magnum TA, and so many others. And for all you Android users, please hit us up on Google Play or Player FM. And all you iOS users, please check us out on TuneIn Radio, Automatic, Spotify, and now iHeartRadio. And now, without any further ado, he is a man that worked for WCW, WWF, Championship Wrestling from Florida, and of course, a former ECW referee as well as legendary manager. He is the manager of champions. He is Fonzie, Bill Alfonso. Please enjoy. WCW, WWF, ECW, Championship Wrestling from Florida. He is a former ECW legendary manager and referee. Of course, talking about the manager of champions, Fonzie himself, Bill Alfonso. Bill, welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Oh, thanks, Daddy. What a nice intro. Hey, that's what it's all about. Now, with you, you got so much going on lately. I feel like I see, keep seeing you popping up here, popping up there. What is going on in the world right now of the manager of champions? Well, I, I took a few years off to um, watch my grandson grow. It's beautiful. Oh, my God. Uh, and then um, I got back into social media and then started getting all kind of requests this, this, this year. So I've been doing a few shows here and there. And social media things been picked up for me real Good, pleasantly surprised about that. Uh, all wrestling fans, 
you know, ECW has its own following. It's like a cult almost. And if you were any type of uh, ECW superstar or worked for that company for any length of time, you're in that following. So uh, lucky for me, I worked with the three top guys that were in the company, you know, uh, Taz, of course, uh, Sabu, and the whole fucking show, RBD Daddy. So, you know, got a good following. People seem to like me. And when I do go to some of these conventions and and uh, some of these indie shows, which I never thought I'd be doing, but, you know, I like them. I love them. I'm well-received by the fans and the boys. So it's uh, been uh, pretty cool for Bill Alfonso. I love that, you know, you stepped away from the business and the fans don't forget you. Like you said, ECW fans so loyal and, and they're like a cult and they're just I know they're just one of those fans they they never forget those ECW guys is that something that's near and dear to you yeah of course it is it's nice to be remembered and then there's a second set of fans uh that are real like historian type wrestling fans which knows everybody from Klondike Bill to Bobo Brazil to the Sheik to Bruno San Martino to Bobo Brazil and all these guys, you know, those type of, and I got, I was involved in all that stuff from the 1978 and then 1980, I got a full-time job and I worked like 20 years in the business full-time. So I'm well remembered because I've done so many classic matches and been involved in so many big events from WrestleMania to Last Tango in Tampa to, you know, the TBS and the, uh, Superstation and all those things. So um, I'm a kind of a unique. Well, let me put it this way: I'm a legend in my own mind. <laughs> that is great, and you're right. You have been everywhere, and you've done everything. And I mean, you've been a part of the business, like you said, pretty much since uh, 1980, and really 1978, 1979. But full time job, that first full time job in championship wrestling from Florida. You work for Dusty? Yes. Dusty was a booker. Eddie Graham and a few other people owned Florida Championship Wrestling. It was based out of Tampa. That's where I was born and raised at. And I was so at the right place at the right time. And got picked up, man. It was like a miracle. And I love the business. Oh, my God. I've done nothing else my entire life than... Uh, wrestling, the king of sports, as they called it back in the day, sports entertainment now, and uh, said nothing else, really. What was it like first meeting Big Dust and then becoming, you know, his assistant, basically, and working for him? What was that moment like? Well, it was thrilling for me um, because I had went out, I was born and raised in Tampa, and I, by chance, oh, well, my father was a friend of the sports editor for the big newspaper here, Tampa Times. And he used to write the results of Florida Championship Wrestling on Tuesday nights. Monday night was West Palm, Tampa was Tuesday, Wednesday was Miami, Thursday was Jacksonville, Friday was a spot show, could have been anywhere, Bayfront Center, could have been St. Augustine at a college, and Saturday was another big spot show. And then Sunday would be Orlando, and it would repeat itself week after week after week, 
month after month, 365 days a year. We rarely had days off because any holidays were made to draw for us, like Thanksgiving Day. What the fuck do you do? Oh, go out and, and go to a sellout crowd at the at, at the Bayfront Center and watch Dusty and uh, Ron Bass have a cage match. Uh, Christmas night, same thing. So, uh, it, uh, so uh, where was I? Um, so my dad was friends with a sports editor, and uh, Tampa was a hotbed, and I didn't know it. I didn't know anything about wrestling. But my dad came home, he had lunch with a sports editor, and he gave him two comp tickets because the wrestling office comp the writer tickets. And he said, hey, Billy, I got a couple of tickets to wrestling for you from my buddy. I said, wrestling? What? The, what? What is that, Dad? I was about 10, 11 years old. And I said, well, not interested, but, you know, thanks. So they sat on the fireplace all weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. I started thinking about it. I said, huh, there's two tickets. They're like $2 tickets. It was like $2 or $3 to get into the admission back then. I said, let me call my bestie, my buddy, who I go fishing with all the time, who I love, and still good friends with him to this day. Uh, let me go to him and say, see if he wants to go check this wrestling thing out. I don't know what to, I didn't have a clue. Never watched it on TV. Gordon Soli was here. You know, they had a uh, TV show. It was great. So that Tuesday, I go to the matches. About 12 years old, I guess, 13 maybe max. And there was Bobby Shane, uh, the great Malenko, Eddie Graham, Bobo Brazil, Hiro Matsuda. Uh, those particular guys were there that night and some more. So, man, I had, John, I fell in love with the business that night. First time, got me hooked. I loved it. Oh, my God. I used to beg my dad, free please see Frank Klein so I can get the comp tickets. Please, please. And he always would. He always gave me the comp tickets. And uh, I grew up watching it, man. It was phenomenal. And, uh, uh, you know, I was 16, 17. I was trying to get in it. I wanted to be a wrestler. But I was small. I'm still small. I was, uh, you know, 140 pounds back then. I was 19, 20 years old. I was only 155 pounds. Not skinny, just small. Uh, so I started meeting the, some of the wrestlers and being friends with them and, you know, hang out where they hang out or whether it's the gym or on Tuesday night they would go to this bar called the Imperial Room and I wasn't old enough to get in the bar, but somehow I was meeting the guys. And, uh, sooner or later I started doing things for them. Hey, go give me this. Or, go give me some sandwiches. Go give me a bag of weed or whatever the fuck it was. And um, so the story is that uh, my friend, who I mentioned, who went with me to all these shows, grew up big. I mean, he always looked like a wrestler, and he got into wrestling. So, uh, and I was a sidekick, basically, meeting my buddies. So, uh, Rocky Johnson and King Curtis told David Sierra, the Cuban assassin, and me, he said, hey, I can't, we're trying to get booked somewhere. I'm as a referee. And I hadn't trained to be a referee. I just knew I could do it. I've been a fan for 10 years, you know, watching this. You know, seven years watching this every night. I I knew everything, I thought. Uh, so they send us out to um, Rocky Johnson, uh, the Rock's dad, and King Curtis send us out to Gary Hart, who was the booker for Fritz Von Erich in Dallas. 
He said, Dave, I got you booked 100% there. You're going to go out there and work for six months, and then they'll book you somewhere else later. And I want Fonzie to go with you, and you tell him that, tell, uh, um, tell the booker, Gary Hart, that say, hey, this is my little brother. He's going to be with me, and he's a referee. If we can ever use him, he's going to be with me. And Gary Hart said, okay, well, we got our own referees here, Bronco Lubitsch, uh, uh, the other one, Danny, uh, uh, another big name, great referee. Uh, so, but if we can ever use them, we would. So the six months I was out there, I, I worked like six or eight times because the referee was sick or something happened or, uh, so, but I worked with Joe Blancher in San Antonio. I worked for Paul Bosch once or twice in Houston. I worked for Fritz Von Erich once or twice in Dallas. I worked for Terry and Dory in Amarillo once or twice. So I had met and I've been around these people the six months that I was there, John. I mean, I was in the dressing room every night, getting cokes, whatever, boom, helping, whatever, but not making no money. And just there, you know, but paying my dues. And uh, so I said, Dave, I said, look, I can't be here no more you know i gotta go home back to florida maybe start a new line do something because i can't just be riding around texas for the rest of my life with you but he was taking care of me he said okay fonzie good that's okay i'm gonna miss you so all the wrestlers got wind that i was leaving and paul jones who just recently passed away you know paul jones from oh yeah yep uh, uh hell of a talent he said hey Fonz, i heard you going uh back home i said yeah Paul Jones, you guys have been so good to me, but thank you. I said, I got to go do something. I can't just ride around with you guys and help now and then. We work six times in the six months. He said, I understand. He said, we'll do this. He said, look, Jerry Briscoe is one of my best friends in my life. It's really, he said, he's an assistant booker to Dusty and Florida. You going to Tampa, right? I said, yeah, that's where I was born and raised. That's my home. Going back to my parents' house on Lake Juanita in Odessa. And he said, uh, well, once you get settled, why don't you go to the office, tell Jerry Briscoe that I sent you in to let them know that you just moved back from Texas and worked for Joe Blanchard, the Funks, the Von Erics, uh, uh, you know, whoever I work with, but don't tell them, you know. Uh, I said, okay. So I came home about two weeks later. That was ringing in my ear. So, oh, my God, do I have the nerve to call the wrestling, go to the wrestling office and see Jerry Briscoe and Dusty Rhodes? My God, this is a big thing, you know. So I finally get the nerve and I go. Jerry Briscoe, you know, I go to the the, the clerk at the desk, Charlie Lay. He says, okay, what can I do for you, kid? I said, well, Paul Jones sent me Jerry Briscoe. Okay. Hey, Jerry, he calls upstairs. Hey, Jerry, there's a kid down here, Paul Jones, and um, he talks like that. Hmm. So I, I go upstairs, and there's Jerry Briscoe sitting in fucking dusty chair, big office, beautiful, all the wrestling pictures. I said, man, this is legendary for me. I'm fucking freaking out. He says, hey, what can I do for you? And I give him a story. You know, I worked here and there uh, to Texas, you know, the five places that I worked, Paul Bosch and Von Eric and, and Blanchard and and so and so. So he says, Wow, uh, Bill, well, Alfonso, Fonzie, you, you sure do got the credibility. You work for all the big companies, you know, all big names. He says, 
I tell you what I do. He says we got our own full time referees, but maybe he says this summer we're gonna maybe run two shows on the weekends, and if we can use you, we'll call you. I said, great, thank you. Sis. So leave me a number with Charlie Lay, who was a former wrestler, uh, old retired. Leave me a number with Charlie Lay downstairs. And uh, if we can use it, we'll call you. I said, Jerry, thank you so much. I didn't meet Dusty. He wasn't there. Uh, uh, this was on a Monday. And uh, Monday was West Palm, and then Tampa was Tuesday. So this was on a Monday. He's telling me all this. Leave my number. So I left, took everybody's hand, was thrilled to at least, you know, get a verbal confirmation, you know, leave my number and all that. I was thrilled. But I knew nothing would ever happen. They got their full-time referees. Getting into business is very hard. There's only 100 jobs and 1,000 wrestlers, referees. You know what I'm saying, brother? Mm-hmm. Yep. Very hard to get in. So I wasn't disappointed, so I went home and... Um, the next morning was Tuesday and my phone rings and it's Charlie Lay. He says, Hey kid, this is Charlie Lay from the wrestling office. So he talks. I said, yes, sir. He said, Jerry Briscoe wants to know if he can come down tonight and referee for us at the armory, the biggest stage of them all really for me. You know, I said, yes, sir. He said, okay, be there at 7 o'clock. Boom. Now I'm nervous. So my ring attire was, I've only worked six or eight times professionally and got paid for it. You know, once for the Von Erics, once here, once there. So I didn't have exactly the most beautiful gear and stuff. My shirt was a little bit big. It was like a large, and I wore medium. My shoes where my I had the wrestling boots were size 12 and I wore 10 and a half. My pants, you know, were so so. So I go. I'm so excited. I can't believe it. I go to the army. They said be there at seven. I get there like at 6:45. The boys don't get there till usually seven. But Dusty was real punctual. I'll tell you about that later. Very punctual. So he was in the army when I walked in the dressing room. <clears throat> it was him. It was just Dusty, me and Dusty. You asked me what it was like to meet Dusty. So I walk in the dressing room, and I don't think anybody's in there, but Dusty's going over his books. He's the booker, you know. He's going to call tonight. Uh, walk in and say, hey, Bella Ponce. says, hey, Dusty Rhodes. He says, uh, you are a new referee? I said, yes, sir. He said, okay, uh, have a seat, and I'll get with you later on. That's all he said to me, and I was thrilled to meet him. He's like meeting... Uh, a big superstar meeting to me, you know, the Beatles. Uh, and, I, and I worked that night. What happened was on the way to West Palm the night before, the referee that was there, who I don't know who it was to this day, it was some, and then you wouldn't recognize the name anyway. It wasn't like Tommy Young or anybody like that. But he had the three main events wrestlers in his car with them. They were going across to West Palm Beach and going across Alligator Alley. Had a flat tire. It was a sellout crowd, the three main events, and didn't have a spare tire in his car. They missed oh, the show. Oh, my God. Joe Dusty was so pissed off. My God. They fired him immediately. They called me. 
and I finished out the week. There were Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Then when it came to Sunday to Orlando, Jerry Briscoe came up to me because they liked me immediately. I had some type of connection with the Florida Championship Wrestling, Lucky the Iris, or Lucky Me. Everybody <laughs> liked me. Plus, I was talented. I was small. I made everybody look big. I was clean, you know what I mean? Uh, young, relatively young, in my early fucking 20s. And Jerry Briscoe came up to me and says, Hey, um, Dusty wants to hire you full-time. And I said, Okay, thank you so much. He said, Just remember one thing. You can leave as fast as you came, telling me don't fuck up. You can get fired quick. So that was my beginning of my uh, 30-something-year career, and I'm sitting here talking to you, telling you about it. Were you nervous? Was that a lot of pressure, especially with Dusty and knowing, you know, they're like, oh, we can fire you, stuff like that? Nervousness, pressure? Um, no. I, if there was, I didn't notice it. I was probably so nervous that it, I didn't even notice it, but it made me – perform in a good way. It made me sharp as a tack. I wasn't, uh, I didn't speak till I was spoken to. I was very respectful. I was uh, Johnny on the spot. I was uh, no, no fuck up. I was early. I would look good. Uh, I refereed my ass off. I stayed to the last thing. I volunteered. I did whatever it could be. So I was an asset and I didn't even know. I loved the business so much. It just flowed out of me the the goodness of, you know made me good and I was around all these talented guys John how could I not I mean super every one of them was, you know I can name all the names I say oh yeah I know oh Mike Graham oh yeah Steve Kern oh yeah Bob Roop Olympic oh yeah King Curtis uh Sailor R. Thomas Bobo Brazil all these names you know them all so how could I not Jack and Terry Briscoe the Funks all these world champions uh it was crazy so I had to adapt or else I'd be noticeable. And that's what I didn't want to be was noticeable. I wanted to blend in just like them guys. They were so fucking professional and so good and so cool that, you know what I mean, uh, we'd be talking about the weather or something. We wouldn't be talking wrestling. The wrestling, we know. You go every day and do the same thing. You're a fucking expert at it. That's what I wanted to be, and I adapted real quick. But, yeah, nervous. I'll tell you when I got get nervous, John. Uh, hey, let me ask you a question. Are we on the number one, the best, one of the best podcasts in the country, wrestling podcasts in the country? Are we, uh, am, I, am I talking to the podcast that gets good reviews and has so many multiple superstars on? Is this the right podcast I'm on, Daddy? Oh, yeah, you're damn right. You're damn right about that. Dusty Rhodes' last ever interview was with us. So that's uh, really, uh, when you told me that the other day, uh, touched home with me. So. Uh, I, I'm glad to be here, and I'm fortunate to be here. So hopefully I perform and people like my stories. Generally, John, when I tell some of the stories that are just legitimate, like how I've, the, how I've been talking for the last 10 minutes or whatever, people seem, they're now the real wrestling fans, if somebody's scanning through and they're not a wrestling fan, they don't give a fuck what I say. Who the fuck is Bill Alfonso? Uh, but if I got a target audience like a group of wrestling people listening to it or going to a fan fest and it's all wrestling crowds. Like if I go to a Comic-Con and there's Spider-Man and, and Jack the Ripper and all these big characters 
and a few wrestlers, I get passed by like I'm you know, Poison Ivy. But if I go to a fan fest and it's a direct market, it's a, you know, it's all wrestling people, then I'm fucking, yes, I'm very Gucci, you know what I mean? Uh, so I still get nervous when I do this. I still get nervous right as it's my, like, the fifth match is on, and I know I'm the sixth match, going to manage somebody or referee a world title match or referee Fujinami and Ric Flair in front of 65,000 Japanese people at the Tokyo Dome, sold out, standing room only. That's where Muhammad Ali fought the Japanese guy. Uh, that's where Buster Douglas beat Mike Tyson. Uh, the 65, so I would get still to this day, after being in the business for, you know, over decades, I still get those butterflies before I got, go out the curtain. If it's Madison Square Gardens, of course. But even these little indie shows, like I'm doing some stuff in Ohio with a spectacular small but big company, AIW. Oh, my God, they're just like a little ECW uh, show and they're doing fantastic they draw well they got really strong workers so when I go out to the ring with Matthew Justice who is their intense heavyweight champion they put me with him they let me manage him it makes, it makes no sense to manage anybody else I go right to the top and I get warm receptions and people love it uh, the promoter likes me all the boys love me I do fantastic work out there. I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm not 21 no more, but I still do some pretty good stuff. And plus, I got a good mind. Uh, I, all the guys always ask me for some advice. Hey, Fonzie, you watch my match. What do you think? And I'll give them, you know, I'll give them to tell the truth. You know what I mean? I'm no uh, Dusty Rose or something, but I've been around all these characters. So I, I was like a sponge, man. That's why I was considered one of the better referees in the country. That's why they would fly me to Tokyo to referee Fujinami and Ric Flair. That's why they would fly me to Europe to, you know, and Vince's tour to Yokozuna and, and Hulk Hogan and some of these uh, big matches. Um, so I get nervous. You ask me if I get nervous from certain things, but mainly nervous when I got to go through that curtain, but then I settle right in. You know what I mean? When I walk out through the curtain, I'm a little butterfly. Okay, here we go again, daddy. Boom. And then uh, success. And then I'm happy as fuck when I come back. I love it. And, you know, we're talking about championship wrestling for Florida, but you did mention the Tokyo Dome and Slayer and Fujinami and basically would, would be Super Brawl, basically, you know, WWE would have their own Super Bowl with Fujinami or Flair, but the, the rematch in the Tokyo Dome and that, that huge match that was going on there, and you said that they pull you out there and they pick you. How do you know? How does that happen? Because you know that's a huge time, and that's basically when WCW and New Japan are, you know, kind of forming this huge relationship. Right. Well, fortunately for me, right place at the right time, and you better be a talented person when they call you. Or they won't call you anyway if you're not talented. They wouldn't call somebody. There'd be no nepotism here just because I was uh, uh, Vince McMahon's son, which I'm, Shane's fantastic. He goes above and beyond the, when he performs. But there would be no nepotism on the part of somebody getting a job referee in that important match. You had to be talented. So how that happened was 
had worked for Dusty. That, that, that was 1991. Mm-hmm. Yep. In Tokyo. So I already had been working for Dusty for, you know, 10 years. And I was a uh, legendary referee already in my own mind. People say, oh, you're one of the top three referees in the country, Fonzie. Anybody come through Ric Flair? Oh, I love you to referee my matches, Fonzie. You're good, like Tommy Young and and uh, uh, David Manning in, in Dallas. And, you know, I was one of the, considered one of the top referees, so I'll get uh, – was a little bit in demand. Not in demand, because – but they would use me a lot. So, Hiro Matsuda, which was part owner of Florida Championship Wrestling – was working, was there, was uh, the Japanese office man in the States. So he would book all the American wrestlers uh, for the Japanese office. And then this big thing came up. It was the first joint show, WCW, and I was Dusty's boy. And Matsuda loved me. At first, he didn't like me. He didn't know who the fuck it was. He was there from 1980 till. Till you know, till he died just recently, the last you know ten years or so, I was friends with him. But when I first came in, he didn't give me no respect. You know how the Japanese office, Japanese guys, they're real making the uh, make the young boys pay. You ever been to a dojo in Japan, a wrestling dojo? It's pretty hardcore. The young guys, you know who Onita is? Oh yeah. So listen to this. It was uh, Giant Baba. It was. Uh, a sellout show with Jim Crockett in Charlotte, North Carolina, at that big building on Independence Boulevard in Charlotte. It was a Japanese mix show with Jim Crockett's mix show. And Baba was on the card, and he defended his belt against, it might have been Onita or whatever. Anyway, Onita was a young boy. This was in the fucking early 80s. Uh, and then he became a big star, but... As uh, this is kind of my first experience with the Japanese working with them, so the match is over. Big Baba comes back, sits down, and I guess it was with Onita. The match was with Onita uh, because Onita got down on his knees and started unlacing his boots and taking his boots off, and he was sitting on his knees unlacing his boots, crying like it was a uh, like it was an honor. You know what I mean? I don't know why if he was crying because he got the belt or if he was crying because he was lacing Baba's shoes, but I've never seen anything like that in the United States. I've never seen, you know, me having to do Dusty's boots or something. He followed him in and washed his back and carried his back. It was a real humbling experience to watch all that. And that's how they do it in Japan. Still, they still do it to this day, the young boys. So Matsuda... Had said, hey, Fonzie, we got this big match, this WCW, and and then uh, uh, the Japanese office joint show. I want you to referee the match. You can do it. Boom, boom, boom. And sure enough, I go, I'm, 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 you know, I get, uh, I said, damn, what can I do not to stand out and be noticed so much? They all know who I am, but I want to look as good as I possibly can. I want to look like a superstar in a superstar uh, environment. So the best thing I could do was buy nice, beautiful new Nikes, black, buy nice designer black pants, buy nice, beautiful designer shirt, beautiful designer bow tie, and I have a flag, a Japanese flag, an American flag sewn up my shirt. So 
So it was like, you know, USA versus Japan. And uh, I didn't put it on. And I sat next to Dusty in the dressing room and the Japanese, all the big Japanese office guys. When I put that shirt on, they all come up to me. Ooh, ah, we lie. You know what I mean? <laughs> yep. It was nothing, but it was something, a little effort. And uh, and the mass was su- successful. I took my bump. I did the thing. We did the title switch. We did the back and forth. We did the follow-up match. I did my little promo. Did all that. Very successful. They paid nice money. They flew me back and forth, business class. They paid for all my food. It was just wonderful. Just a wonderful experience. And then maybe it was being in the right place at the right time. But, yeah, that matters. But being in the right place at the right time, if you don't have the talent to back it up, you're not going to get picked. Oh, yeah. That, I mean, that's the most important thing. you got to be able to back it up. I just love that, that awesome picture you had sent me the other day. You're in the middle of Slayer and Fujinami, and, Fans obviously know Ric Flair's, but if you don't know Fujinami, just look him up. One of the greatest Japanese wrestlers of all time. Great world champion, just an unbelievable talent. What was it like being in the middle of the, not only those two, but the middle of the Tokyo Dome at that point? Huge, 60,000 people there. I mean, huge show. Once that bell rings, once I get over, like I said, when I'm at the curtain and they hit the bell for the referee to come out or whatever, I go out, I'm getting the little butterflies. Once that goes away pretty quick, I mean, it's all business. I don't care if it's uh, 600 people or 800 people at the ECW Arena or 65,000 people at the Tokyo Dome. It's kind of the same thing. I want to do 100%, get my thing done. And and the people, they didn't respond like, like the American people. I didn't notice that right away. They were clapping. It was more of a – now they've uh, escalated and, and, you know, turned into a little more Americanized fans, but – um, it wasn't, they were clapping when they did a big high spot or player took a big back drop, people would clap and shit, but, uh, or say, Ooh, ah, that was the famous saying, but it was pretty, pretty damn cool. And it was kind of a screw job match because the referee takes a bump. Me, Bill Alfonso takes a bump. The match continues. I'm out on the floor. Uh, they go toe to toe. Fujinami throws Ric Flair over the top rope, the old fucking top rope finish, and I see it. So uh, Flair crawls back in the ring. Here comes a Japanese referee running down the fucking runway. I'm still selling. I'm coming around. I got knocked out a little bit. I'm shaking it off. Uh, The referee slides in. Fujinami gives him a big boom. Referee counts one, two, three. Oh, my God, the belt switches, the hands up, the fucking Japanese 65,000 is fucking going great. People are fucking uh, very impressed. The photographers are going crazy. It's a big, exciting moment in Japan. Really, they take it really big serious. I mean, it's on national fucking front page news the next day. And I'm pantomiming. Now, I don't stop the match and reverse it right then. We want to make everybody happy and we're going to do it later but I'm pantomiming and the cameras pan over to me and, and I'm going no, no, no with my arms and I'm pointing to the top rope but I'm not telling the guy with the microphone hey and now this, this is a disqualification the belt don't change hands never said that we just went back to the dressing room and we played the tapes and they, you know we talked about it and it was eventually reversed and all that but that was spectacular and I, it was pretty pretty cool to be involved something like that and having them guys having the faith in me to pull that off. But if I didn't, after 10 years of working with Dusty and the Funks and the Eddie Grams, I'd be an idiot. So, yes, I mean, 
fantastic. And then that led to WCW contract, which led to a WWF contract, which led to a verbal five-year plan with ECW contract. So I've been lucky in one means, but I have worked very hard, very hard. Yeah, you've literally been everywhere. Like you said, you basically were under some sort of major promotion, whether it be Florida, WCW, WWF, ECW, you know, for 20 years, basically. A long, long time to be a part of one of the world's major wrestling promotions. And I definitely want to talk ECW, obviously, but WWF, Vince McMahon, that era, How'd you get in WWF at this point? You were just done with WWF contracts up, then you move along. Like, how, how does that work? Well, there's a, a, a pretty uh, cool story. You want to hear it? Hell yeah! All right, Daddy. So we're in. Uh, I'm in WCW. I'm working for Dusty. He's my boy. I'm his left hand man. I can't do no wrong because I'm early. I do my thing. I referee. I don't get in no trouble. I'm not a drug addict yet. Uh, you know, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I'm beautiful. I dress nice. I got fucking nice luggage. I'm making money. I'm making so much money. I can't believe it. My first check in WCW, I didn't cash it. I took it to Dusty. I said, Dusty, look at my check. It's so big. They sent me the wrong check. He said, Fonzie, that's just the beginning, son. Uh, I said, okay, great. So I'm making six figures in 91. Not the high six figures, but you know, well over a hundred. That's six figures, daddy. Uh, so what was the question? Oh, Get, getting I, into WBF. Yep. How did I, uh, the right place at the right time. So I had been working in WCW for Dusty. Doing great. Doing great. And the business was good. I mean, we were doing big buildings, sell-out crowds all over the country. Oh, my God, business was on fire. And Vince was doing the same thing. He was going, uh, doing bigger business in WCW. It was crazy how the um, country was supporting two major companies and selling out wherever they go. And, oh, my God, it was just crazy. But the wrestling was peaking or something because, man, it was hot. So they brought in a guy, WCW, you know, Turner owned WCW, owned the Hawks, he owned this, he owned that, he owned everything. So, uh, meantime... Um, some guy from the Hawks was in Europe. Was you know Ted Turner owns the, the Hawks, the Braves, CNN, Pete Street owns Atlanta. He owns everything. So one of the Hawks uh, guys spotted Giant Gonzalez playing European basketball in Europe, and he invited him to come over to the United States and try out for the Atlanta Hawks, and he accepted. And he came over. And they trained them, and they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on this giant, eight-foot giant. But remember, he had been playing basketball for a few years already in Europe. So his knees, plus he's a giant, plus he's eight foot, plus he's 450 pounds, is a real, a real bona fide certified fucking giant. He's a, a Goliath person, for real. So... They brought him over to play for the Hawks. So they trained him for a year, got him a nutritionist, uh, dropped his weight, put him in the Peachtree at the Omni Hotel for a year. Uh, and after a year, they said, look, time we got And paid him real well to train, to try to get uh, his body in good enough shape to play for the NBA. 
So, unfortunately, after a year, somebody said to the Giant, well, Giant, you know, we can't use you in the NBA because we need you more than 18 minutes per game. You can only play six minutes at 100%, then you go down to 70%, then you go down to 40 then you're the shits. Because you can't, you know, your body can't take it. But we, Ted Turner does own WCW. It's a wrestling promotion. He said, what? What the fuck's the WCW? What's wrestling? You know, this kid's from Argentina. Uh, he says, oh, this is wrestling. We're training you. We're going to pay you good and this and that. And he said, okay, I'll try it. So they put him, they trained him for a while. You know, he's stationary in, in uh in Atlanta, training them, and they sent them down to Florida to heal Matsuda to train them down here. Then they put him on TV and put him on the road in WCW, and Dusty asked me, he said, hey, Fonzie, we need you to take care of the Giant full-time. You're with him 24-7, whatever he needs. You drive him around. You make sure he gets to the building. You do this. If you want the hamburger at 3 o'clock in the morning, you fucking get it. Whatever. We're going to give you a little bonus on your check. I said, Okay. So I was with the Giant for two years in WCW. They didn't have to pay me anymore because we became super friends, and I got more perks than anything uh, being his personal assistant for two years, and uh, being three years, a year in the WWF. Uh, for instance, they would want the Giant to go to a Braves game, but they would put the Giant in Ted Turner's where, where Ted Turner would sit and Jimmy Carter would sit side by side in the presidential box at the game, at the Braves game. But So the camera would pan over and there would be the giant and the commentator would say, oh, my God, look, even the giant comes out to see the Braves. And they wouldn't say they're sponsored too, but I'd be sitting right next to the giant because I'm his guy. Uh they sent us to do movies, Thunder Paradise, uh, Action, uh, uh, Baywatch, uh, fucking TV, show, all kind of shit, which was pretty freaking cool, plus wrestling all over the country. So this new guy, so the company, the, the business was doing really good from 91 uh, uh, to, you know, 92, and then for some reason the economy struck and it started doing a little bit off. Went from 100% to like, you know, 82% or whatever rev, uh, sellout. So they brought this new guy in to manage, to be the CEO of WCW, and his name was Jim Hurd. You know the name? Absolutely, yes. Mr. Okay. Pizza Hut, absolutely. Exactly, Daddy. He ran a big, he was a CEO of some big shot in pizza business and was supposed to come in and shave some stuff off instead of uh, WCW spending $70 million a year, uh, we're going to spend only 50 So, And we had contracts, bona fide contracts, me and the Giant. So, so I'm going to just give you some numbers. That, uh, they're not exactly accurate, but kind of accurate. So the Giant got 250 the first year. The second year, he got 350 And the fourth year, he got 450 Now, this is 91 so that's pretty good money. And I was, you know, based at about 100 and 120 and then 150 for the three years, which was fine for me. I didn't give a fuck if I made whatever. So he's so he wanted a lot of guys to take pay cuts because he felt that everybody was getting overpaid. Well, 
uh-uh, we had already been making that big money for, you know, a year. Why should we take a pay cut? So I mean, him have a discussion. It's Fonzie. I'm not so happy about Jim Hurd, this new guy coming here trying to tell us to do taking a pay cut. What the fuck is that? We got a bona fide contract. We can hold out. He says, well, what do you think we should do, Fonzie? I said, well, here's our options, Daddy. We can work. They would love you in Japan because we had already been over there once or twice. They loved him because he was so big. Even though Jack Gonzalez couldn't work that well, he was so big he didn't have to work. He wasn't an Andre worker. He was just a Jack Gonzalez worker type. He didn't get the business, didn't understand the psychology uh, 100%. But he was good looking. He looked like no other guy on the planet. So people wanted to see him anyway. Uh, so I said, we can go to Japan or you can go to Japan and work, you know, 10 weeks a year and make pretty good freaking money. Or you can go back and play European basketball. They'll take you back. Even though the NWA, NBA won't take you back. I won't hire you. You can still go play European ball. They like you over there. Or he says, Fonzie, do you know anybody in WWF? I said, I certainly do. I said, I know JJ Dillon who at the time was Vince McMahon's assistant booker and right-hand man, plus Vince had 20 other people around him. He always does, writers and such. And he said, why don't you call him and explain our situation to him and see what our options are. Because our options are go play basketball, work in Japan, or possibly, if the WWF's interested, possibly there. I said, okay. So... Just so happened, I was at my parents' house in Odessa, Florida, right outside of Tampa, the big lake house, because the giant had to have a little spur cut out of his heel. You know, those had a, like a little light surgery. It was, you know, a 10-minute surgery, but you got to be off your feet for, you know, four days or something. So we were off all that week <clears throat> recuperating at my parents' house. Boy, the fucking neighbors thought we were... Uh, Fucking, they walk, look over, and they see Zang Gonzalez, you know, my mom riding around in a golf buggy. They couldn't believe it. Said, what the fuck? It's kind of funny. But so <laughs> so the Giants healing up pretty good. It's the tail end of his five-day ordeal with his uh, operation on his foot. So I called J.J. Dillon, and they put me right through to him pretty good because J.J. knows who I am. You know, you can't just call the WWF office and ask for a fucking premium uh, guy like assistant, but you can't ask for Bruce Pritchard to get right to him. Or you certainly can't ask for Vince, and Vince picks up the phone. Uh, so I asked for J.J. Dillon, say, hey, yeah, this is Bill Alfonso. And so I said, hold on. So a minute goes by, hey, Fonzie, hi, how you doing? Oh, my God, how you been? How's your family? Boom, boom, boom. What's the plan? What can I do for you? I said, okay, J.J., here's the situation. And I explained to him, Jim Hurd, hey, cut. Zion doesn't like it. He can go to Japan, go back and play basketball, or we're interested to see if you're interested in me and him. I'm a package deal with him. I, I'm a referee. You know that, oh, Fonzie, the best referee in the country. He says, and you take care of the Giant. I know that too. He says, but let me run it by Vince and see what he thinks. He said, no, you know, good luck, Fonzie. And we wish you well, but I'm going to run to my fans and we'll get back with you. I said, okay, J.J. Dillon, thank you so much, brother. Thank you. God bless J.J. It's so good to talk to you. How's your twins doing? Oh, my God, everybody's Gucci. 
so I hang up and I say, Giant, well, I ran him by him. JD said he might run him by. He's going to run him by Vince. And John, 20 minutes later, the phone rings. It's JJ. Ali, I don't know how I deserve all this. So JJ says, Fonzie, Vince, I ran it by Vince. This is almost word for word. I ran it by Vince, and Vince was very interested. He said he'd like to meet you. When can you guys come up? I said, well, we're off for 10 days, and we've been off already seven days, and we're scheduled to go back in four days to WCW because he had a spur cut out of his foot, but he's healed up pretty good. And we're at my house in Florida, my parents' home. And he said, well, can you fly up tomorrow? I said, we certainly can. We're, we don't have nothing to do until three days. You know, we go back on the road for a So he says, okay, give me the name. You know, give me uh, George Gonzalez, William Alfonso, all that, the names. He said, I said, but J.J., the giant can only fly first class because he's so big and, you know, I don't my I go coach. Okay, okay, but don't worry about it, Fonzie. They flew us both up first class, of course. Right. Limo picks us up. And we get off, me and Giant Gonzalez get off. So, first of all, I tell Giant Gonzalez, hey, Giant, they're, they're going to fly us up. And we're pretty excited to go meet the greatest promoter ever on the planet. Can you name one bigger than Vince McMahon? Cannot. Okay, thank you. I can't either. So we're going to go meet the biggest promoter on the planet. And so far, you know, I've never met him. And uh, JJ said he likes the idea, so maybe we got something. So we fly up, jump on the plane, first class, A1, A2. We get off the plane. We're walking, looking for the guy with the sign that says Fonzie and the Giant, you know, as baggage. And Spike Dudley, Spike Doug, uh, uh, Spike. You know, Spike, the black kid, the producer. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, he runs up to us because you know he loves basketball. He's at all the fucking games. You see him on court at ringside, right? Uh, he comes up and says, oh, my God, who's that guy? And he wanted to do us call him. He wanted to do a movie part or some shit. I said, look, we're under uh, contract, but, you know, you can call the wrestling office and this and that. So, anyway. The limo takes us to Vince McMahon. We think we're going to go to um, WWF headquarters right off of 95, Titan mm-hmm. Howard. Yep. Big yellow goldish building, the mirror type building, three level. And uh, so we pass that. Said, hmm, where the fuck is the limo guy taking us? So we pull up to this huge, beautiful mansion and. Uh, I'll think of the name of the spot in a second, but it's Vince's house. Beautiful. And as we're pulling up, JJ's on the fucking from open by the front door, uh, welcoming 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 me and the giant. Hey, Fonzio, you look great, giant. I'm JJ Dillon. They introduced ourselves. Just come on in. Vince is running a few minutes late. Come on in, and we will have some refreshments, or whatever. We're talking a few minutes, so we're sitting there and. We're just talking stuff, and JJ has never met the giant. And anybody who meets him for the first time it takes a second look. You know what I mean? This guy's actually amazing. I was with him three years every day, and every day he was amazing to be around. I mean, really amazing. It was incredible. It's like a gift from God or something. I may be talking uh, weird, but it's it's true. It's one of God's gifts. Uh, so 20 minutes later, JJ. Opens the door and there's Vince McMahon. Walks in his own house. 
a blue suit, fucking his uh, uh, tennis shoes on, beautiful, comes in, hey, guys, introduces himself, and we start talking and bullshitting, and so oh, I, I know who you are. He said, you're, you're athletic. I've seen you on TV before. Puts me over. So oh, that's nice, Vince. You don't really know me, or does he? Hmm. Uh, uh, I think Vince knows everything. But So him and the Giants start talking. And so he says, you're going to make a lot of money with us. How much do you make over there? He says, oh, 250 next year, 350 Oh, we can make way more than that, way more. He says, in fact, I don't even want you guys to go back and finish up your contract in three days. Fuck them people. You come work for me. He says, and Giants Gi- 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 says, well, they owe me $60,000. That's, you know, I haven't got paid yet. And uh, Vin says, fuck the $60,000. JJ, write him a check. That's his signing bonus, 60 grand. Don't ever go back. WCW again. So we said, okay. Wow. So Giant said, hey, Vince, I haven't been home in three years for Christmas. Uh, you think I can go home? This is like November and come and start after Christmas and, you know, January 5th or something. He said, of course. Said, Give me plenty of time to work on your gimmick or whatever. Go home, Giant. I'll pay for your flight and send you home. Boom. Put him on a plane, send him home with a $60,000 bonus. And he said, Fonzie, do you want to start in January too, like the Giant? Or have you been home for Christmas? I said I'm home every year for Christmas. I don't want to wait. He said, "Okay, JJ, put him to work." So JJ, now Vince has two months bookings already, two months worth of bookings already, all over the country. He says, "JJ, add him on." So JJ gets a piece of paper and a booking sheet starts adding me on to existing uh, shows. Here and there, here and there, here and there. And I look out and it says, JJ, what's MSG? He said, Fonzie, because I've never been to Madison Square Gardens because I worked for WCW in the South, you know what I mean? Every, mm-hmm. major, every major building but that one. And he started laughing. That's Madison Square Gardens, Fonzie. He said, Oh, great. So I had been, well, I worked for a couple of months before the Giant came in in January. So that's exactly how we got to WWF. And they loved us. I love it because with him, legitimately, at least seven, seven, wherever he is, eight foot tall. I mean, he was huge, just a dynamic, ginormous guy. And then little Fonzie's with him. I love that. You guys are the package deal. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it was it was real good. And he didn't like a lot of people. Him and I rode together by ourselves 90% of the time. We didn't, you know, I mean, the thing needed to ride because something happened or something that was okay or well, you know, even to anybody it doesn't have to be Sting, but he liked to be, you know, just me and him. So, and uh, Turner gave me a Cadillac for three years every day, a brand new Cadillac from Avis. Gave me his credit card and said, "You rent a Cadillac for the Giant every day." I said, okay, thank you. Now, did he like the wrestling business, or did he just do it because he was getting paid well? Uh, I think both. I think both. He liked it because we were in the limelight. Well, he would be get he he would be noticeable if he was a janitor. You know, people would just look at him no matter what he did. Uh, so he was already used to people looking at him. And but then it came a different kind of fame. If you didn't know who he was, if you didn't know he was a wrestler, who the fuck is that? But he did like the business and. Um, he liked the attention. 
He liked the benefits. He liked the money. And, of course, he liked the girls. And the girls loved the giant because he was not really like a Andre giant. Maybe he would have been later on. But remember how uh, Andre, you know, uh, later in life is – Forehead, so he had that. They get the giant's disease and the bones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. Gigantism. Foreheads. Yep. Yeah. So Dragon's house hadn't really gotten to that stage yet. So he was really proportioned well. His hands were everything fit to his body. He was just big, and he was a Spanish kid, good looking, long black hair, relatively young. Oh, he was young, and had a good rap, and you know what I mean. And he liked America, and the women fucking loved him so. Being in the business, too. Not his main reason, but I would say, you know, top ten. You know, money, fame, women. That's not a bad thing. No, and obviously, you know, you started before him in the WWF, but his initial feud when he starts in in January, immediately they put him in a feud with The Undertaker. Yeah, and and it worked out okay, and everybody knew that Jack Gonzalez was the best worker, so they had to work around it. And uh, uh, But, you know, God bless the giant. His health was slowly deteriorating, and we didn't even know it yet. You know what I mean? He was uh, becoming a diabetic, and it was hard for him to be on the road, and he couldn't bump, and it was getting hard for him to travel. And, you know, shortly after WrestleMania, or a bit after that, you know what I mean? He had to... And he started getting real sick and different different problems and stuff. So he had to quit the business and go home. But he made a lot of money. He wasn't a big spender. Uh, and he saved a lot of money. And that money was triple or quadrupled in Argentina. You know what I mean? A hundred grand mm-hmm. was like a million dollars there. So he went home happily. And he really enjoyed the WrestleManias and stuff. And uh, he had a good run. And he's uh, a you know, legendary figure to a certain extent, not like Andre, but legendary as one of the biggest people on the planet, professional athletes, for sure. Hey, let's pause one second to tell you a little bit more about today's sponsor, MyBookie.ag. Is there anything better than the NFL season? At the end of a hard week, it's great to sit down and take some time off and watch some football. Now, what you should be doing is the smart thing. And if you're going to bet this football season, bet with MyBookie. If you're the kind of guy that likes to bet a little and win a lot, try a parlay. If all your picks come through, you'll multiply your winnings. And no matter how you bet, this NFL season is going to be the best time of the year to take advantage of this offer. Join now and MyBookie will double your first deposit if you enter the promo code TMPOWER. Game-winning touchdowns on two-minute drives, running backs racing down the sidelines with no one to stop them. There is nothing like the NFL and there's no better way to make the games even more exciting than to bet on. So don't forget, when your betting is just as important as who you're betting on, MyBookie.ag is the best in the business. It's where we play and where you should too. Again, use the promo code TMPOWER to Activate the offer. Again, the promo code is TMPOWER and activate that code today and you play, you win, you get paid with mybookie.ag. And if you think about him in the WWF, he had basically eight months feud with Undertaker. I mean, it's pretty good Royal Rumble, WrestleMania, which you refereed, and then SummerSlam was basically the end for him. Pretty damn cool. Very cool. And it was very cool for me, too. I was blessed to be with him. 
and I miss him to this day. We became such good friends, such good friends. Was that your only WrestleMania, WrestleMania 9, or, or did you do well, other WrestleMania? No, I did that one. Uh, I came in right after WrestleMania, and I left right before WrestleMania 10. So I missed eight by a month, and I left by a month before not 10. So I did nine. And, and the reason I left is because... When I got there with the Giant in 93 or whatever it was, uh, I did the first Monday Night Raw, which was great. Who knew it was going to be one of the most watched shows on cable in the history of television or whatever, you know the name. Uh, First Monday Night Raw, the WrestleMania, all that stuff. Uh, So what was I telling you? Oh, so anyway, the Giant had left, and then the business took another decline. So instead of... You know, the buildings would be 100% capacity. They would drop down to 70%. Business was across the board in both companies all over the world. Economics, you know, was just down. Uh, So Vince's people came up to me and said, well, unfortunately, Fonzie, you were the last referee they hired. So you're the first one that we're going to have to cut because we're cutting and cutting back. And if something happens... Uh, we're going to bring you back and, you know, when we were and so on and so on. So these people were talking to me like I was getting fired, like in a bad way. They weren't being uh, fucking uh, uh, diplomatic at all, the way this guy was talking to me. So I said, okay. So I went right up to Vince. As soon as I seen Vince at the next TV, I said, hey, Vince, um, I understand what's going on, and I appreciate your work and everything, but the way your staff uh, approached me and told me I was leaving, like I was getting fired for doing something bad and didn't give me any notice, you know, it would be nice to get a month notice or a couple-week notice. I got a family and house payments and everything, too, you know. He said, what? They did that to you, Fonzie? He said, who did that to you? And I said, that guy right over there. And whoever it was, you know, he asked me who did it. And he, he says, okay, Fonzie. He says, don't worry. I'm going to take care of you. Here's what's going to happen. We're going to have to let you go because we're letting go 20% of the water coolers. Uh, we're not getting uh, premium gas. We're getting regular gas. We're going to let it go for some wrestlers, one referee, and uh, whatever. He says, but when business picks back up, I'm going to bring you in. And when we do shows in Florida – you're going to work all those shows. So there's something. Uh, plus, I'm going to give you a severance package, a big check. I said, how big? He said, a big one. So he did. He gave me a huge check, so big I couldn't hardly carry it. Swear to God. <laughs> Blew me away. I, was over, I was overwhelmed. But I said, what? I, I can't believe it. I mean, it wasn't that big. It wasn't like 100 grand, but it was, you know, like in, uh, pretty damn big. So... When he gave me the check and I went home after I finished up in two weeks, you know, I was very thankful. I said, man, and now this is actually, John, the first time in the history since I 1980 that I've had no job, no, not looking for it, didn't want to look for it, had a house paid for almost, had brand new nice things, had money in the bank, uh, uh, 
and time on my hands. I said, oh, my God, let me enjoy a couple of months off, six months off, a year off. I've been on the road 20 years. So I was enjoying my life. I was on my tractor cutting grass, picking oranges. My God, having a nice time as the phone rings. It's Paul Heyman. Paul Heyman? Hey, Paul, how you doing? Now, the interesting thing about me and Paul, we've been friends since the early 80s because he came down to Florida Championship Wrestling with a guy named Tombstone. He was out of Baltimore. A nice-looking wrestler, had a beautiful body, pretty good worker. And Paul Heyman came down with him to try to get a job. And he said, hey, this is my buddy. He's going to be traveling with me while I'm here the six months. But if you can ever use him, you know, he does whatever, ring announce, take pictures, get cold, whatever. And and we became good friends. I knew him for six months. And so Tombstone was leaving, just like my story with Paul Jones. And, and uh, you know, how I worked a few times in Texas, when I got how I got started. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, it was the same thing with Paul Heyman. So Paul, so the so the wrestler Tombstone got his notice, and he was going to go to like Mid Atlantic or something. So Paul Heyman was leaving with him, and I was assistant booker to Bob Roop. Bob Roop was a booker at that time. This was in the mid eighties, and uh, uh, Paul Heyman came up to me and said, "Hey, Fonzie, do you think I can go to the ring with?" tombstone and be his manager you know he's leaving in two weeks i said yeah i know he's leaving in two weeks but so you think i can go to and be his manager the last two weeks i says well you got a pair of levi's on with holes in them you got a a pair of thomas on and you got a t-shirt you can't go in the ring like that brother i says you you think you can get a suit or something like that i didn't know his parents were wealthy and his parents lived in some of the most expensive real estate on the planet, you know what I mean, right outside of New York City. Uh, and he said, oh, yeah, I can get a suit. So you with me? Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, my phone just went blank for a second. Um, so the uh, he, goes, he comes with a suit, and he goes to the ring, and he says he's got his little gimmick, and he brings a freaking phone with him. It's not a cell phone because cell phones really didn't exist back then. They were, if they did, there was those big, like a big bread box with a cord and a big battery and all that. So he brought like a house phone, like a cordless phone, to the ring with him. And we were like talking on the phone. and said it looked pretty good. He had a suit on and, you know, and it worked the last two weeks every night with uh, um, um, Razor Among, Scott Hall. So it was Scott Hall versus Tombstone and, Tombstone was doing a job for Scott Hall because he was leaving. And then they would tote their press slam, Paul Heyman. And at the last thing, Paul Heyman said, oh, thanks, Fonzie. Well, I want to leave, and I'll see you soon. Thanks. I'll never forget you. Boom, boom, boom. So the next thing I know, I'm in WCW, and Paul leaves. He goes to AWA. He becomes a big star manager in AWA. Then we both end up in WCW together. He's managing all these people, Rick Rude and, and uh, Coach Stone and all these people. And, you know, I'm refereeing with the giant and all that. So, uh, to get to the WC ECW story, is I get let I'm laid off from Vince with a nice severance package. Plus, I save my money. Plus, I got a house. Plus, I'm doing good. Plus, I'm happy as hell. I'm the happiest motherfucker in the United States, having some time off for the first time in you know multiple years. It was Paul Heyman. Hey, Paul, we talked for a minute. He says, hey, Fonzie, listen. He said, you just left WWF. You're still on TV practically, you know, because they tape a lot of Monday Night Raw and put them in the can. 
They would do one live show, tape two. One live show, tape two. They did that until they went live every Monday. So he says, you're still on, uh, he says, I got this idea. I got this company in Philly. It's called ECW. I said, ECW? What the fuck's an ECW? Because I've never worked an indie show in my life. I'm not familiar with any of it, you know? And he said, oh, I got this, you know, this, this little company. He said, I got this idea. Would you come up for four weeks? Don't worry. I'll pay you good. I said, I'm not worried about the money. Uh, he said, I'll pay you. I'll fly you. I'll put you in a hotel. And you're in and out in four weeks. And just work this little angle because you're fresh out of WWF. And it makes sense. When you get here, I'll tell you more. I said, okay. So I get my plane ticket for Friday. And I fly up. I go walk in the dressing room. I got a fucking beautiful suit on. I got Louis Vuitton luggage. I'm wearing a Rolex. I walked in. There's a Sandman smoking a cigarette. There's Tommy Dreamer fucking talking to fucking whoever. There's Taz, a monkey boy, whoever the fuck he was. There's Mikey Whiprack. There's all these characters that were very cool, but I didn't know not one of them. I'm used to walking in the dressing room, and there's Sting and the Steiners and Bruno San Martino and Lex Luger and... Jim Crockett and Dusty Rose and Terry Allen. That's who I'm walking to the dressing room with. So, but these guys are his stars. And they are some. Most of them knew me because if you're in the indie circuit, you know a lot about wrestling. So they knew me and put me over. Hey, Fonz, how you doing? Uh, so I came in there to be anti-violent. You know the story, kind of. Uh, uh, referee with a bow tie. Vince McMahon wants the doctor and his wife and the two kids at ringside. He don't want uh, 32-year-old guys fucking in the audience yelling, you fucked up. You know what I mean? So they brought me in to tame, to be anti-violent and to be more uh, family-orientated. And me try to stop the violence in ECW, and it got over. People hated me for it. There was a Taipei death match between Ian Rotten and Axel Rotten that the people had paid big money to see, and they've been building this match up for weeks. It's where they tape their hands up, dip it in glue, dip it in glass, and then they beat the hell out of each other in an ECW violent kind of way. So I was the referee for that match. So the first little trinkle, I mean, it looked like a scratch. You know how they bleed in ECW. The mm-hmm. first little blood, yeah. I stopped the match. I said, due to the uh, blood and the opponent's eye, lack of vision, I'm stopping the match. The people wanted to play. I had to get a police escort out of that building, brother. Believe that. <laughs> so the 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 thing got over which Paul Heyman didn't expect to get over so much, but the character got over and the angle got over. Wow, this angle is really going good. And it was a natural it was a natural uh, uh, thing for me to go into the managing thing that was Paul Heyman. I, we didn't have no idea that the thing was going to take off in such a manner and and five years later, I was going to be beloved at one of the best spots in ECW history as manager of champions with Van Damme and Sabu and Taz and so on, and had a lucky spot and, and did really well, did really well, and made good money and worked two days a week, so it fit me perfect. I had just come off the road working seven days a week for years, and to work Friday and Saturday, are you kidding me? And to make reasonably good money 
even though all that bullshit about bad checks and all that bad shit, I never got one fucking bad check in my life. There was a few guys that, you know, I had to struggle for their pay and sometimes, but you got to remember, we had no corporate sponsors. ECW was on his own. We were the black sheep of the wrestling industry, even though Vince was stealing our talent. So was WCW. They were poking our talent out. But we were, say we were, I don't know exact figures, but ECW was making $14 million a year, but spending 16 So, you know, that's how the demise, that's how, you know, we had to divvy up the money. Everybody didn't. You know, we we got paid as we went. We were trying to build a brand, and which did. We we built a great brand, and I was happy to be a part of that. Paul Heyman let me uh, be involved in it, and I was so thankful and I love Paul uh, dearly for that. Thank you, Paul Heyman. That was great, though. At, at first, you the troubleshooting, the enforcer referee, you know, like the, the anti-ECW referee, they absolutely hated you. You feuded with Todd Gordon, you guys, which was hilarious just because it's like these two non-wrestlers are going in there and they're killing each other. And then obviously you get stripped of the refing duties, become the manager. But kind of just talk about that at first as far as feuding with Todd Gordon and having these crazy matches and, and wrestling all over the place. Do you think that was just an awesome experience for you? Yes, it was an awesome, awesome experience. I was lucky in the way that you know Ty Gordon and I and I are still dear friends to this day I talk to him once a week or or more, more often than that I just text him today and send him some picture of my uh oh get a new t-shirt daddy if anybody's interested go to Bill Bill Fonzie Alfonso on my social media baby my uh Facebook my Instagram my Twitter you can go we can follow you can go see the shirt check it out it is a badass shirt and it is RVD approved, Daddy. You're gonna love the shirt. So anyway, Todd, I, I sent a picture of Todd's and of the shirt just to get his approval. And he he said, "Pop." He just takes me back and said, "Pop." So I popped him. You know, got a big pop out of it. Uh, <laughs> and so he liked it. So Todd Gordon and I are really good friends to this day. And I was so lucky, so lucky. And it probably had to do with my professionalism and my background that they accepted me but then I was actually pretty cool to be around too you know so all that being blended and all the stars aligned I got along so good with everybody Ty Gordon he did beat my ass because he's not a wrestler he is a businessman you know so once he get in the ring with me he didn't know how to throw a working punch that good or give me a backdrop properly or do a clothesline. He used to beat my ass. And I used to rip him all the time. He said, Todd Gordon, you beat me up so bad. I can't fucking open my jaw to eat for fucking three days. And he laughed. But, uh, <laughs> we had a good run. Everything we did, everything I did, I was so lucky. It, it worked out and it kept my job. It kept my job. You got to love ECW doing things so differently. Like you said, having a businessman and an ex-referee, Becoming a manager, having these crazy matches, but the crowd was into it. I mean, they loved your matches. They were uh, they were going crazy for you guys. Uh, thank God that they accepted it because if they didn't, I wouldn't have stayed there five years. If they didn't like what Paul Heyman was producing and putting out, the wrestlers would not 
and everlasting. If Sandman wasn't the Sandman, didn't have that fantastic intro with the beer and the cigarette and the cane and and uh, you know all that stuff. And Tommy Dreamer, everybody had a gimmick, and it was all getting over. What, what can we do? Hey, can you hear me? Okay, because it started to rain. And I'm in my yeah. convertible. City oh yeah. Top convertible, uh, bouncing off. You know, making noise. So I'm afraid you um, running some interference. But you can hear me fine. Yep. Perfect. Okay, what was I talking about, Daddy? I've been—I had a couple concussions, so I forgot. You basically being uh, the crowd was enamored with you in ECW. You said you lasted there oh, five so, years. Oh yeah, yeah. So I was very—I was very lucky that the crowd accepted me, and for one reason they accepted me is because of my background, because I was, you know, reputable. I'd worked for these major companies, and all those people were smart marks. These people knew about fucking wrestling. Plus, they loved the ECW hardcore. Plus, Paul Heyman turned me hardcore. I didn't know I was hardcore until I got into the ring and was watching all these guys. I mean, I was in sports entertainment with Vince and Ted Turner, and Florida was a little kind of like ECW, but not that way, not that hardcore stuff. But uh, it was crazy, and uh, I adapted to it. I guess if you're good and if you're, you're talented, which I was lucky, that you could adapt to any situation, and that's what I did. And it was well-respected. Even, uh, uh, for instance, about uh, the same guys at ringside at the ECW arena that would spit on me and call me a motherfucker or something would buy me a cocktail at the bar at the Marriott after the matches. You know what I mean? So they'd get mm-hmm. carried away. Uh, oh, blow that whistle up your ass or whatever. You know what I mean? I didn't like the whistle at first, but then... If, I liked it because if you didn't know who I was, oh, you that motherfucker who blows the whistle, okay. <laughs> but uh, very good. And I had uh, um, one, well, this is what Paul Heyman in WWE says. I don't say this. They say it. Paul Heyman says it, and WWE says, uh, because it's been on multiple DVDs that you buy from WWF like uh, Blood Sports and uh, four or five different DVDs that Vince puts out. So Paul Heyman's narrating the tapes, you know. They show the Bob Wire match between Terry Funk and Sabu, and that was a pretty hardcore match. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yes. It's notorious. It's, uh, people are still talking about it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, of course, I was there. So they showed that whole great match between Terry and and Sabu, and where Sabu gets his bicep almost ripped ripped apart, you know. Born like, to be wired, yep. Go get me some tape. So I run back to the dressing room. I bring him the tape, and he's taping his cut up that's like 18 inches long, or 15 inches long, and an uh, inch or two wide from the bob wire. He's taping it up while taking a reverse neck breaker from Terry Funk onto a steel chair. Incredible. So that was a really hardcore match, and we had a cut him out of the barbed wire after the match and the title squids and all that and so on and so on. So that match shows. And then in between matches, there's a commentation uh, from a WWF superstar. And it's Paul Heyman. He says, well, we didn't know how we were going to follow that match, but my God, we swear we're never going to have a match like that again. It was too violent. <coughs> but you guys remember Fonzie? Phil Alfonso? He had the most five intense minutes, not in just in ECW history, 
but in professional wrestling. Then the tape rose, and there's me and Beulah. But they put it over as a spectacular thing. I think it was good, and the blood helped a lot. People still ask me, and they ask Beulah all the time, because I still talk to her a lot about the match. That is Paul Heyman's favorite match, supposedly, from ECW that he always talks about, you and Beulah, and you losing all that blood. Yeah, if he, if he says, give me five or ten of your favorite matches, he might say, this match, that match, and I'll be included in that match, in that list, I would think. There was a lot of loss of blood, and very memorable, because the crowd is nuts for it as well. Yeah, and somehow, we pulled it off. We were so lucky. I mean, we were two non-wrestlers. I didn't wrestle that much. Mm-hmm. I wrestled a little bit here and there, but Beulah hasn't wrestled at all. She's a fucking uh, penthouse centerfold spread in, uh, and a movie star in her own right. And um, so put two non-wrestlers in there, and we didn't, you know, rehearse or practice our match for days, or we just talked a little bit and went in there and did our shit. And luckily enough, it happened, you know. Very memorable, and when Heyman says it's one of his favorite matches, I mean, that just puts the stamp on it, and obviously gets a lot of people talking. Even now, people still talking about that match, and it is crazy because you're not a wrestler, like you said. Obviously, she's not a wrestler, but you're able to do that. Is that blood kind of, even looking back, is it a little scary? You know, it was a lot of blood lost in that match. Oh, yeah, it was definitely scary. Not at the moment, but after I look back at it, and you know, after hours after the match, so this is what happened. She hits me with that tin sheet, bam, and I get big juice, fucking, I get busted wide open, and the tin sheet hit me at exact perfect place. We could never redo that move again. It was just the luck of the Irish that we were so good. Uh, where And every time, it, it, this happened like, 25 seconds into the match. Boom, I get busted open. And so I said, okay, I feel a little blood coming down, and it kept coming down more and more and more and more. And then every time my heart would beat or I'd pick her up, I'd, you know, pump out and shit. By the time half of the match is over, I mean, we're both soaked. And I got a black shirt on. I mean, I lost so much blood. And then I'm hanging upside down, taking a steel chair and doing a hoomba recovery whatever the fuck we're doing, uh, it was fucking crazy. So the one, two, three, and I still didn't realize how bad the gas was because it it ended up uh, getting rushed to the hospital because the paramedics backstage couldn't really stop it. So they end up putting a cold steel plate on my head, putting that uh, uh, gauze around it and rushing me in an ambulance to the nearest hospital with head trauma. And of course, they take me right away because head trauma, they take you first. They don't bullshit with head trauma. So they took me in and I tell the nurse, she starts to unwrap my head. I say, hey, I wouldn't do that if I was you. She said, oh, shut up. This is on a Friday night. She tells me to shut up. She says, oh, shut up. I've been a nurse for 22 years. I know what I'm doing. I said, okay. So she takes the gauze off and the cold plate and it squirts all over her blouse, white blouse and shit, like a like a if you squeeze a bottle of ketchup. I loved it. And she pushed the button, and a bunch of people ran in there and were holding my feet up. And a guy comes in there with those jumper cables that they start your heart with and shit. 
I said, what are those for? He said, oh, just in case. I said, holy shit. So end up that uh, somehow I severed nerves and an artery. I didn't have feeling on the top of my head for like at least six months. I could I could comb my hair and not feel the comb going through my head, you know. So finally came back. Beulah called me every day. Oh, how are you, Fonzie? She called me every day for months, sent me flowers and all kinds of stuff, cards. Oh, Fonzie, I'm so sorry, but we stole the show. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, Fonzie. How you feeling? She was such a sweetheart. I love Beulah. Scary, scary stuff. Were you, I you know, a little uh, nervous or maybe even scared for your life at that point with all that blood loss and all that stuff going on? <coughs> well, <coughs> no, actually, no, because I didn't realize I was so hyped up. I was so into the ECW game. I was so into the character. I was so into the hardcore stuff. I was so into not letting any of the guys down. Now, the wrestlers bleed every night. Sandman's head gets busted open every night. Tommy Dreamer bleeds every night. Raven bleeds every night. Fonzie's going to complain about bleeding one night with Beulah. Oh, my God, I look like a big pussy. So I would never say nothing. So the doctor, after they stitched me up like 27 stitches inside and outside of my head, inside, I don't know what they did, but they had to stitch some artery or some fucking vein, whatever they did, and then the the thing dissolves inside your head, and then the staple here, the staple there, it was crazy. I didn't think nothing of it, so they wanted to keep me in the hospital for a couple of days, at least overnight, and, you know, for assessment. I said, fuck no, I'm leaving. And they said, okay, you got to sign a waiver if you're leaving. Uh, he said, here, sign this waiver. We recommend you don't smoke, don't take a pill. Don't have a cocktail. Don't do nothing. Don't fly. Don't do nothing. I said, okay, thank you. I walk out of the fucking emergency room. Oh, they wheel me out in the wheelchair. I stand up there's a Sandman. He's got a 44-ounce cocktail for me. He's got a joint going. I take a fucking pill, and we'll go back to the fucking uh, um, uh, hotel and party. Then I catch the plane home the next day. That's when I felt it. When I got home, I said, oh, my God, because my head was numb, and I was moving kind of slow. But that night, I didn't care. But I did feel it. I said, damn, what did I go through? The guy said, I thought he said, you lost 33% of your blood, you know. I don't know how that happens, and you still survive. But uh, that's what I remember, you know. Yeah, yeah, I was scared at the end. But I look back at it and say, damn, that could have been a death thing. Because look what happened to Chris Candido. Mm-hmm. You know, he yep. got hurt. He got hurt, and they said, don't get on a plane. And he got on a plane, and I think the fucking thing went up through his heart and killed him. I think. And it's crazy. We, uh, we do a show with Shane Douglas, and he was saying that he's just shocked of all the craziness that Candido did. Like, that's what got him. Like, that's how he ended up <laughs> passing away. Like, you know, he did lived a crazy life, and that's what got him. Just scary stuff when you think about it. <laughs> <clears throat> yes, and I love uh, Candido. Candido was a talented fucking worker. He was—he reminded me of an old school uh, worker because he knew all the mechanics. Plus, he could do all the new shit, all the new ECW stuff. Uh, he was uh, good as worker, greatest worker as anybody in the business, you know, wrestling wise and all that. 
uh, a little small, but he made up for it in his work. You know, it wasn't a big, tall guy. Vince liked big guys, but towards the end, Vince didn't take anybody because not look at Ray Mysterio Jr., you know what I mean, small guy, but uh, Vince always had a tendency for the big guys, but, you know, he had to switch over and have multi-sized people he wanted to make it. So as far as you, and we'll, we'll rewind just a little bit in ECW, just because I wanted to touch on it with Taz. So, you know, you make kind of a, a big push for yourself, and obviously Heyman gives you the big push with Taz, and Taz is getting the big push. They put you with him. You guys have great chemistry, but I think the best part is when you actually turn on him and you end up being with Sabu, was that something that was a really cool moment? Because for the fans, that's a huge turning point. That's a huge feud. That's two of the biggest guys ever in ECW. Well, nobody expected it, and either did I. Uh, I didn't expect it. What, baby? Uh, I didn't expect it. Uh, hold on one second, Daddy. Are you leaving? Okay. I got a girl leaving. Hey, sweetheart. See you later, Daddy. Bye. Bye, baby. It's raining so hard. I'm in my fucking little car uh, doing an interview, doing this promo, and I'm loving It's like a promo. Uh, and loving it. I got some piece of quiet out here. My house is full of my grandson, beautiful. Uh, he's a, uh, Monday Night Football's on and everything. I came out here so I can relax, smoke a cigarette, bullshit with you. The hottest podcast in the country, Daddy. I wanted to be laid back. So she came out here to visit me for a minute, and then uh, she wanted to go back in. So there she goes. Uh, nice. Beautiful, too, Daddy. Beautiful. Oh, my God. Uh, so the thing with uh, we were talking about Taz. <laughs> Taz and Sabu, yep. Okay, so nobody, uh, I didn't expect it, Paul Heyman didn't expect it, Taz didn't expect it, is when Taz turned, remember, and I, and I would put me as his manager, and Taz felt like ECW fucked him, all his friends, uh, Fonzie was the only one that called him, uh, and we just clicked and had a great run. Absolutely, yeah. Thanks, baby. Oh, she brought me an umbrella. But that's to get out. It it is storming, brother. So, anyway, uh, so nobody expected it. I didn't expect to have that big, long run with Taz. And then Paul would play play it by ear on how he ran the show. You know, he had a format, and I'm sure he had things he wanted to do in the month from now and so on and so on. There's long programs that go on a year. But if it was time to go, it was time to go. So, man, was it the first night, barely legal. The big pay-per-view, I remember, uh, like it was yesterday, we were all sitting in the dress room, and Paul Heyman standing on the steps with Todd Gordon standing right next to him. And, he, you know, he'd always give a speech, usually a lot of uh, – promoters, including Vince and stuff, gives you a pep talk before the show, and he said, hey, welcome to the dance, or you guys made it, and this and that. I was like, wow, great. And then I got the finish. I didn't really know 100% that I was switching with Taz and and uh, against Taz and going with Van Damme and Sabu. I didn't know that until that night, and I didn't realize what a monumental thing that was for that company 
and I was a part of that. It was pretty cool until later, because you know what I mean. It's just another night, a big night. Everybody I was so overwhelmed by our first pay per view. Uh, I've been on hundreds of them, you know, with the different companies. But the first one that it, this was ECW's goal is to try to make it, you know. Uh, so it was pretty damn cool, and people didn't really say what. Okay, and then I, you know, started all over with Van Dam and Sabu and. And God bless me, it was the right place at the right time. And it worked with Sabu. Worked. And then Van Damme came in, and I don't know what the chemistry was, but it was fabulous. We had, we're doing funny promos and serious promos, and Van Damme was the hottest thing since, you know, in any company. Van Damme, pound for pound, Van Damme was the hottest kid in the country. I mean, if you were to put him on Vince's Monday night, which they did, I mean, Van Damme's a phenomenal worker. Oh, my God, he is badass. And Sabu is so really hardcore, great worker. But he is one of the toughest guys I know. Like, I mean, uh, pain thrust throw and, you know what I mean, and don't give a fucking do a moonsault or fucking 747 and land. You know what I mean? Crazy shit. And keep going. Wrestle with a broken jaw or, or whatever. And Van Damme is a re- really a tough guy. You know what I mean? If I got in a fight, if I was at a strip club and three guys wanted to fight me, and Van Damme said, hey, Fonzie, I'll take care of all three of them, that wouldn't surprise me at all, because he would. He can beat three guys up at one time. He is really badass. Fuck, he's tough, man. And he's so cool. He can slap you around in a rage. and you never seen RVD in a rage. And then the next second, BRVD again. But just making a point, you know what I mean? Like, somebody pissed him off. Uh, he's so cool. That was rarely happens, but it has happened. When they put you, Sabu, and him together, it is great chemistry, great pairing with you guys. I love it. Even with Sabu and RVD, who obviously have a very, very long history, I love the dynamic, though. They're, they're friends. They're, they're training partners forever. Uh, but they're, they feuded a little bit. There's a little tension. But then you're in the middle. Just It was a great pairing. Did you think that that was going to be as good of a pairing as it ended up being? No, of course not. I had no clue what I was doing. I had no clue how we were going to jive and promote. I had no clue how the people were going to accept and react and like the promos and the, the, and then the joint effort, all three of us. I said, wow. I, you know, and promoters seemed to like it. Paul Heyman liked it. Uh, we were getting good, you know, good feedback from people. And no, I did, I did not know that. It, it was so cool. It worked out. We look, I can look back, you can pull up some stuff on YouTube and some of the promos are okay. Most of them are really good. And then there's a few of them that can stand up to today. You know what I mean? It would make sense today. It was pretty cool. When Van Damme was really priming out in ECW, do great promos. And then uh, uh, me and Sabu run interference and the whole thing. And it was just fucking cool. It was really, really and it worked. People were buying tickets, and they were putting asses in the seats, as they would say, the promoter would say. You know what's great about you is those ECW fans tended to 
almost cheer sometimes for the heels and almost just kind of go against what you would normally think is obviously a little bit of a different organization, the way they ran, the way the fans were smart marks, the way they were, but you were definitely hated it. The whistle, the way you talked, the way you acted, you really were such a great natural heel. Did you think you had it in you when, when you were, you know, starting out as a rep and then all of a sudden jumped into that managerial role as a heel? No, I didn't think I had it in me. I knew I had it in me to be a manager in some capacity. Cause I had I had been around the business. I had been around super managers. I've been around Dusty and all these fantastic, legendary people. And you know, I knew every aspect of the business. I knew how to book a territory, how to hire guys, how to set up matches, how to run shows, how to do everything, how to plan out a week how to plan out for six months, how to run a territory. I knew all that. Every aspect of the business I knew because I had been around it for 10 years, around the most, uh, the biggest companies on the planet that provided sports entertainment wrestling. What's bigger than WWF and WCW? Who's bigger than them? Japan, been there, done that. So I've been around these guys. So for me to be in the a management position, Paul Heyman put me in there, <clears throat> I knew I could handle it to a capacity. I thought I was going to be like a a different type of manager. I didn't know that what people wanted and what Paul Heyman brought out in me and what I found out that worked the best for me was, and I found it to be the best for a lot of guys to be successful, is to be myself. I amp it up a little bit like I drank a pot of coffee and snorted a line of uh, speed or something, but I don't, I never did that. So I would just, I'm naturally hyped. Can't you tell how hyper I am on the phone, kind of talking to you mm-hmm. in these stories. Absolutely. I'm drug free. I smoke a little bit of cigarette. I don't drink. Um, I'm, but this, I'm, I'm kind of hyper. So I just hyper that character up a little bit and it kind of worked. You know, Daddy, I, you know, and it just kind of worked. And, and with a little guidance to Paul Heyman, a lot of guidance to Paul Heyman and, and uh, Tommy Dreamer. They got in my career pretty good in ECW because they gave me stuff with the say, and then they gave me a format and, you know, guided me. So it was pretty cool. So I didn't know I could do what I did. Looking back at it, I said, wow, what a fucking crazy character. People liked it. I had fun doing it. That's the funnest time I had in my whole career working for all the major companies. I mean, not the most money I make because I made fantastic money, but it wasn't about the money. It was a part of building that brand building at ECW and have been a part of that. Now I'm a kind of a legend, living legend, a little bit of one. So that's because I'm affiliated with that, all that group of people. If, if you say EC, if you say ECW, name 10 characters, my name's going to come up a lot. Hell yeah, that's uh, for damn sure. And as far as the character itself, is that all you is Heyman throwing in stuff like all oh, the whistle or this or that, or, you know, the way you're going to cut the promos. Is that all you, or is he kind of collaborating as well? Paul Heyman would give me a format. He did give me the whistle. Of course, he, yeah, he gave me the whistle. I didn't like it at first. He gave it to me uh, uh, when I turned with Taz that night. The night I turned with Taz and we did that promo in the ring, uh, the first time I got with Taz, I didn't have a whistle. After the show, Paul Heyman said, gave me a whistle. said, next week, bring this whistle. You're going to blow the whistle. That's your new gimmick. 
So the next week, I said, a whistle? What the fuck? I didn't say this to him. I said, to myself, I said, what the fuck, a whistle? I don't want to blow a whistle. Damn, but okay. So I forgot it on purpose next week. And Paulie says, hey, where's your whistle, Daddy? I said, oh, I forgot it. So he, go, he, they, he sent somebody out to get me another whistle. That's your gimmick, Ponzi. You know, so I was embarrassed to blow it a little bit. But after the first 10 minutes, I said, okay. All right, I got the concept. All right, Paul Heyman. Great. All right, and then to start working. If so, you, if you didn't know my name, so say if you, you liked ECW, if you loved it, you knew everybody in the game, and your wife didn't know anything about it, didn't like it, knew you watched it, knew you go to a show, and she said, oh, I hate that damn guy with that whistle. I got so much of that. But if you're, if you're a wrestling person, you know who I am. No doubt about it. And, you know, you mentioned drugs and maybe drug abuse. Six years sober now, what was it like back then in ECW? Was that a rampant problem? Was a lot of uh, drug use no, being abused? No, I think abused? it was a rampant problem in every sport. So it wasn't so governed back then because, you know, it just started getting governed more than uh, later on. But it was in football, uh, baseball, wrestling. Uh, high school sports. There was in every fucking sport there was. So uh, it was no more than any other sport. And it was around. If you wanted to, if you didn't want to, you didn't have to do it. But guys were on fucking multiple growth hormones and steroids and every. I'm not talking only wrestling. I'm talking about football, baseball. Hey, that's a proven fact. Uh, uh, every sport. And wrestling, too. Wrestling wasn't. Uh, uh, shy about doing drugs, you know what I mean? A lot of guys get hurt, you take some medication to fix it, you take the therapy, and you keep going. So, uh, sometimes you use it a little bit more, but yeah, drugs were not a bit, not the, well, I'll tell you what, there was nobody in ECW that did drugs and wasn't able to do their job or got fired because they were out trying to get drugs or missed the show because of drugs or got caught in the dressing room doing drugs. You want to smoke a little pot on your way home on a trip, but you wouldn't light up a joint in the dressing room. And if you were taking a pill, you wouldn't advertise it. You know what I mean? It was uh, just like anywhere else drugs were. Yeah, that period, uh, basically the mid-'90s, was a bit of a crazy period, not only in wrestling, but all over the world. And as far as... As ECW, I mean, it was just a, a different culture, that extreme, that hardcore. It let just... me add this in. Let me add this in with the drugs. Nobody died in ECW history while ECW was still running from the beginning till Vince bought it out in the last show. Nobody died on our watch. They all died after ECW, or they went to a different company and worked for a different company and died and found dead in a hotel room or whatever. But nobody died on our watch. So that's what I got to say about drugs in ECW. Now, so many awesome stories from you. I mean, you've been everywhere. You've done everything. You have a favorite match or matches as far as just being involved, referee, even maybe in the ring, Beulah, Todd Gordon. Do you have some favorite matches to throw out there? Wow. That that is a question that is so hard to answer because there's been so many. But uh, I just say uh, every match was crazy, man, and great. Now, as far as you, 
in wrestling. Is ECW the favorite promotion you've ever been a part of? I know you said maybe it's not the biggest moneymaker. It's the most fun you've had. But is that your favorite promotion you've been a part of? Um, well, I did like being – I did like working for the office. I did like working for Barry Legal and ECW. You know what I mean, Daddy? Um, mm-hmm. he, there, there was... Wow, this is pretty fucking cool. And pretty important. And I can look back on all those dates. And I, I'm kind of a unique character. Like, a lot of wrestlers... Well, I've got a long time... Hey, Johnny. Yep. Uh, we did have good matches. Jerry, Jerry Lynn and RVD had some spectacular matches. Rick Flair and Dusty had different kind of matches. Rick Flair, Barry Windham, uh, Dory Funk, and Jack Briscoe. Oh, my God, what match that's so hard. You know, so some of those matches were my favorite. Now, as far as what you're doing now, and you got some, you said AIW, you got some wrestling shows. What are some plugs? What, what do you got going on here in the future? Oh, even out of 20, I'm playing into newer. Um, we have a session there. Uh, uh, I was going to do real good because I haven't been up there for a long time. They're my ECW people who I love. And uh, the ring is going to be a big event. Uh, I got that coming up. And um, two shows right in the area, two indie shows. I'm going to be refereeing that one. It's all on social media. You can go to Eric Sims' uh, social media or mine. mine. It's on mine, too. It gives you all the details and where, what towns and all that. So I'm thrilled to be doing that. And then immediately after that, I'm uh, flying back up to Ohio to do a, a match. They have a guy, a wrestler, a spectacular athlete, a beautiful guy. Oh, my God, he's big. His body's great. He's got nice hair. He's good-looking. The women love him. He can work his ass off. Uh Matthew Justice, he's their Rob Van Dam, and I'm managing him, so I'm going up there to manage him on the 26th, uh, right outside of Cleveland, it's on uh, social media, uh, and uh, then I got something coming up, and I think Queens, New York coming up, all on my social media, go, uh, Bill Fonzie Alfonso, uh, my Facebook, everything's posted there, you can check out the new t-shirt, RVD approved too, Daddy, uh, there, um, and of course Twitter and Instagram. 
so I'm lucky. I mean, almost turning down shows. I get so many podcast requests, have to filter them out. You know what I mean? Cause mm-hmm. Yep. I just, and I don't tell the same stories, and I don't change the stories. I mean, what I told you tonight is 99% true. Uh, the 1% is because I forgot or something, you know what I mean, left a little part out, or it's very similar to what I've said, you know. Uh, I may be wrong on a little bit of detail, but I don't think so. Uh, but um, I got something coming up with RVD, too, in Minnesota, uh, November 9th. Looking forward to that. That'd be on the uh, social media coming out. Uh, just signed it, that deal. Um, and I'm, I'm keeping as busy as I want to be. And it's been great. It's been great. I'm well-received by wrestlers, well-received by the fans. So it's been generally worth it for a promoter to fly me out of Tampa to this show, like AIW in, in <clears throat> Cleveland. I just We did a verbal six-day contract, which was nice. It's flattering to, you know, hey, Fonzie, I got these six dates. You want to lock them in with me and – you know, I'll give you so much money, fly in, take care of you. You were our top guy. We like the way you work, your performance. You're good for morale. The wrestlers like you. The crowd seems to like you. We sell your merchandise. Everything's good. So, yeah, it's been good. I get a lot of stuff coming up. All on the social media, Daddy. Fonzie is back and better than ever. I love that, you know, all these people are back interested in you. You know, you're back on the scene. You're doing AIW, doing Legends of the Ring convention on the 21st in New Jersey, doing Warriors of Wrestling on the 20th in New York. Big, I mean, one, in, big one October 5th in Indiana. Big uh, conventions. Big convention there. I'm on that one, too. Can oh, yeah, Heroes and Legends. Yep. Yes, I'm on that one. I've been talking with a guy. We, we, got, we did a verbal contract. Uh also, if you come see me out there, what uh, the promoter told me, he said, hey, Fonzie, you do interviews and stuff. He said, I've done this with Mean Gene. When we had Mean Gene come to our events, we've been doing this for years. We draw thousands of people. He said, we used to set up uh, some type of uh, booth where the wrestler and, and uh, accommodator can do a promo or whatever. So uh, he said, we're going to set it up with you and the fans pay X amount of dollars. I don't know what. I don't get none of it. They keep it all. Uh, where they come up and I do a promo like with RVD. Hey, Daddy, uh, next Tuesday night at the War Memorial in uh, West Palm Beach, my man's going to kick your ass, Daddy. And, you know, more than, better than that. But uh, And he said they sell hundreds of them. People stand in line all fucking day long for those. So I guess I'll be doing those, and I'll enjoy that. And people seem generally – enjoy that so that's pretty cool to be asked and that's coming up October 5th in uh, Indiana that big convention and I'm thrilled to do it very very cool and anytime you can not only meet you but get a promo with you and be with the manager of champions and get to be managed quote unquote by Fonzie for, for the day I mean that's pretty damn cool well it's not the coolest thing in the world but if you watched ECW when you were 16 and 17 and 18 and 19 and 20 years old, 20 years later, you're fucking 35, 40 years old, and you used to watch me for fucking five years, and you know who I am, it's fucking pretty, it's kind of cool to hang out with me for a minute. Hey, man, I, used to, I get that all the time, every show I do. 
man, I was 18 years old. I used to go to ECW. I used to watch it. Oh, my God, you were so crazy. Those matches were good, man. Damn. Oh, my God, Sandman. They loved it, and they loved me for some reason. So it's been pretty damn cool. It is just, like you said before, such a unique character in wrestling. So, you know, manager, you did this, you did behind-the-scenes stuff for Dusty. You know, you played a great heel. You managed that boo and RVD. There's so many different things, both in front of and behind the camera. What do you say? You know, f- final question for you. What's the legacy of Bill Alfonso? What's the legacy of Fonzie? That I got along with everybody. I was well-liked. I had heat with nobody. I pulled my own weight. I have a beautiful family. Uh, that's a different aspect of your life. I did well with that. I got a fantastic daughter and the most beautiful grandson you could imagine. Uh, that's my legacy right there. In the wrestling world, just to be well-liked and uh, performing, uh, a great performer and a professional and look great. So I Fine. guess maybe my legacy is that I made the, I entertained and gave the people something and it's real humbling when somebody comes up to me not literally pats me in the back but puts me over you know and says oh Fonzie I remember that match oh and I don't even remember it I gotta try to remember it because there's been thousands of matches literally thousands John and uh, it makes me feel pretty cool when people put you over especially the boys and boys. a lot of the guys the young guys come up to me in the dressing room, man, uh, oh, fucking uh, just, uh, Matthew Justice, the hottest fucking indie guy in the business today, one of the hottest, and fucking can work his ass off. He's a big star in AIW. Uh, he says what got him uh, motivated and why he wanted to be a professional wrestler and why he, he likes me so much, John, why he lo- mm-hmm. loves me. Oh, my God, you can't believe I'm managing him. He said, oh, Fonzie, he loved Van Dam and Sabu, nobody else. So he's the actual cross between Van Dam and Sabu in the ring. It's incredible. And he's ballsy, too. He's on somebody. There's some clips of him on my social media. He's on my Facebook. You look at those clips, and you, you'll see some crazy stuff where you die. Oh, my God. And get stuff like nothing happens. Oh, shit. So brother, take care of yourself. Okay, daddy. But, uh. You know, that's my legacy. Work, work hard, hard at uh, my ethic, but work hard and treat everybody good, you know. Absolutely, and it's been quite an honor kind of taking a trip down memory lane with you tonight. It's been awesome. And I know you mentioned it before, but what is your plugs? What is, what's the social media? Where can people get the new shirt? Where can everybody find you? Easiest place is go to my Facebook Bill Bonzi Alfonso, and I will hit you back. And you can see a lot of great pics. Oh, my God. Some of the pictures I sent you, John, that's just a touch of the iceberg. Those are some pretty cool fucking pictures, right? Those are awesome. Yeah, unbelievable. Andre, Thank you for sending those to me. Unbelievable oh, you're stuff. Welcome. You're welcome. You're so welcome. I'm glad you enjoyed them. I'm glad you liked them. I'm glad you got them. But there's uh, a, a lot of pictures on that uh, um Facebook and I post uh, some new ones every now and then and not only wrestlers I mean you know uh, 
different personalities, different entertainers. It was pretty cool. George Foreman. I, I, you know, being in the wrestling business, you meet a lot of people. You know, I was lucky to meet a lot of uh, big names, and so some of those pictures in there too. And they're all tagged with little stories. So if you read a little paragraph story, like I met George Foreman at WrestleMania Nine in Las Vegas. He was doing their uh, promoting the fight or something. And, he, and I sat right next to him. We were waiting for the cab or something right out in front of uh, Caesar's Palace. We were sitting on a little bench. We, we were bullshitting. And I said, yeah, I'm here with the wrestling. I, you know, I'm the referee, and I take care of the giant Gonzalez. He said, what? I said, yeah, the motherfucker's eight foot tall. He said, no shit. I want to meet that motherfucker. So we bullshitted. We end up going to lunch, meet him and the giant. And he couldn't believe how big the giant was. And he ended up sending me, like, a dozen George Foreman grills because he liked us so much that we had such a great time. He dropped everything and spent like two or three hours with me and the Giant. Loved me, but, you know, he's amazed at the Giant. So th- those pictures are in there. So all kind of cool stuff. Uh, so, yeah, Bill Fonzie Alfonso. I do uh, Instagram, I, I Twitter once in a while. Uh, I just came out with a T-shirt yesterday. It was released. I designed it myself. It's a... Uh, uh, Manager Champions Hardcore 420 Tour, even though I'm not smoking these days, but it's still everybody in Ohio smokes pot. Everybody in Colorado smokes pot. Everybody in California smokes pot. I said, man, my God. And all the wrestling fans and all the ECW people who love me, they all smoke pot. They all say, hey, Fonzie here. I get the, this Maui Waui, this good bud. I know you're hanging around with RVD, and you like to smoke, too. I said, yeah, I did, but I'm not smoking right now, but thanks. Uh, so that's what the shirt's about. It's pretty cool. Van Damme's picture's on there with me and uh, Sabu. It's a badass picture. It's a badass shirt, really. I'm getting good reviews on it, and it's RVD approved. Awesome stuff. I highly recommend everybody get over to his social medias. Maybe buy a shirt or two, definitely, for sure. Check him out. Check out all the awesome pictures in Fonzie. It's been quite an honor to get you on. Quite a pleasure. Thank you so much oh, for John, all the time. John, John, with the shirt that's on uh, the social media, if you buy it, um, I'm giving a 8 by 10 Fonzie's, one of Fonzie's favorite pictures. I can pick anyone out and have it blown up and sent to you. Autograph, that goes with the first 100 shirts. And already, we're like, 40 shirts have been sold, so I've sent out 40 pictures, which, you know, I'm not a big star, but people seem to like it. So you do get a picture, 8 by 10 Fonzie's choice. Could be me and Andre, could be me and Van Damme, but it's going to be a dope picture, believe me. Get that with the shirt. Oh, yeah, you got an impressive library of pictures, so I highly recommend that. Fonzie, awesome stuff. Thank you so much for all the time tonight, and uh, looking forward to uh, round two in the not-so-distant future. Yep, and it was great to be on the hottest podcast in the country. Legendary status, legendary guest, and I'm one of them, Daddy. Thank you so much for having me. This podcast was a presentation of the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcast empire.